Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Graciela Morkowski, Dean at the Craig Newman Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Graciela, welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast. I'm so thrilled uh, that you could join me today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it is wonderful that you are here and you uh, you started your role as dean at the Newmark J School. How long ago? Eight months. Eight months. So this can we can we can talk about. It's not the ninety day uh, conversation. It's basically the um, the eight month conversation. But maybe we can just dive right in with with that as as a start for our conversation. How did you approach that new role? Because it is a it is a big role. It is a new role for you, even though you've been in academia for a while. How did you strategically kind of start that new leadership role? So thank you for the question. So I've been at the school for seven years and um, I had a smaller leadership role at the school before I was running the bilingual program first and then the Center for Community Media. But this job is, of course, much bigger and it requires a different type of strategic approach and understanding of the community. So I did what I always do with everything, um, you know, uh, professional (laughs) in my life, which is I over-prepare. And I spend, um, it took a long time to get this job. It was a 10 month uh, process from, from the moment I applied till I get it. So till I got it. So I used that time to uh, do a very intense listening tour. Uh, I met with faculty members, staff members, uh, alumni, students. I was running, I was the chair of the strategic planning committee, as you know, at the school. So I used that also to um, I had been thinking about the school in strategic, um, in a strategic way, but I used that also to think about, okay, what, what is my strategic vision for the school? I knew some of the, I don't, so this is a healthy school. It's a healthy place. So my job, my, my first, um, approach or the first thing I, thought was, okay, so this is not a broken place that I need to fix. I need to, there's a lot of things that are great and that works. So I don't need to change those, but there are things that I, that I've been, you know, as part of the community that I think Mm. need change. And also I have, I had a very different personality and kind of um, leadership style from the other, the deans that preceded me. And so I wanted to bring that change. We were also at the end I mean, I guess whatever it is of the pandemic at a different time of the pandemic. So the school had gone through, you know, very like every institution in the world, a very rough time and people were coming back into the office and students were very happy to be back in person. So I thought also there would be some community rebuilding uh, that was needed just to bring people together and get them to feel part of the community again. And um, so, you know, I just, I listened, I prepared I knew exactly what I was doing when I started. I uh, sat down in the first um, six months. I made sure I made time to sit down and have one-on-ones with almost everyone at the school so that they would have the chance to kind of approach me in my different role. Um, That was very helpful and interesting because people would tell me different things than they they did before when I was a, a colleague. 
uh, it gave me a different, I, I thought I knew the place, but I realized that there was so much that I didn't. Mm. Um, my husband says that you see everything from the top, you know, yeah. that you have, you have, um, you know, a, a window into, into process or lack of and systems and people's behavior and expectations and dreams yeah. and, and frustrations that you didn't have before. So that was very interesting. And it did change my view on many things. Interesting. Um, mm. I did also realize why some things were done in certain ways when I thought, you know, they made no sense to me from outside. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, this is why. Um, yeah. And, and so I would, you know, that's kind of a general answer to your question. Sorry. That's a very thoughtful, and it doesn't surprise me that you, that you give a, a very thoughtful answer to that because, and for our listeners, we've been, we've been colleagues at the school and our friends and, 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 you know, interacted in, in professionally in the, in the past uh, five years or so. And I've always encountered you as someone who's very prepared and thoughtful in how you go into meetings, conversations, but also big tasks. Uh, now you said something, um, that I found, or your husband said something you said that I, that I found <laughs> very true and interesting that you, you get to see everything from the top. Um, and I do agree, but on the other hand, Sometimes it gets quite, how should I say? It does get a little bit lonely at the top because people stop telling you things and people stop seeing you as a peer and start seeing you as, oh, Graciela, the dean, I cannot, you know, tell her that anymore because she's in a different role now. Did you experience that or are you experiencing any of that? So, so a few things. First, thank you for your words. And uh, I do over prepare because I'm a woman. I don't know that I have a, and I have, and, and I'm an immigrant and I'm a mm. Latina. So I don't know that I have a choice. And I think a lot of women who are leader, and now I know a lot of women who are yeah. in leadership positions and they all feel the same. Like we don't have the privilege to not over prepare. So I'm fine. I don't mind it. I, I, I love over, over preparing, but just, you know, just that yeah. comment. And then, yeah. um, you know, I did, I'm trying, actually, I'm fighting against that um, phenomena that you described. Yeah. Um, I am actually now um, going to, um, I try to stay close to people. Um, you get really busy. I mean, my calendar is ridiculous. And I'm, you know, the first semester was particularly hard uh, in, in the way, in the sense that um, I did not have the support that I needed to run the school because, um, I didn't have a leadership team. So the management team had, um, you know, people had left during the pandemic and my predecessor was, was wonderful, uh, in, in, and in not filling those positions and leaving those yeah. vacancies for me to fill in, to fill. And so but it takes I, some time, right? It and took some, some effort, time. Yeah. It took, you know, for CUNY times, I've done it in like lightning speed yes. time, like in <laughs> six months, seven months, I had a new full, amazing leadership team. So I'm not, I don't feel lonely now because I have incredible people. I, it was quite lonely the first few months. Um, I did have a coach, which is something you recommended at some point, And that actually the, uh, chancellor, the, the head of the university, the president of the university, um, offered to all of the new deans. And I took that offer and I'm very glad that I did. So I have this fantastic woman who meets with me once an hour a week where I can, you know, just talk about these things. And when I was feeling really lonely, you know, Shirley is her name. She was there 
uh, to yeah. support me. So it felt less lonely. Um, and I do, I did create, um, you know, one of my priorities was to create infrastructure for, for things at the school. And one of the needed infrastructures was, was for my, for my leadership and for my, you know, deanship. So I don't feel lonely anymore. And it makes me, um, very happy. Now I come back home and my husband says, now you're smiling when you come home. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the first six months I was like, just, you know, like this dark cloud. <laughs> um, cause I did feel the weight and the yeah. response. It's a huge responsibility and you don't want to make it, you make yeah. mistakes. Right. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I didn't want things to fall through the cracks. And so, of course, um, yeah. it was, but there's, there's just, you know, a, a you know, a limited number of hours in the day. And I have a small child, I mean, young, a young child and yeah. I have a family and I, I believe in, um, the separation of uh, work and, and life <laughs> and yeah. private life. And so, um, you know, that is something that I've encouraged everyone in the, uh, the school to, to make sure they know that, you know, uh, they weekends are, yeah. unless there's something pressing happening, weekends are for rest, uh, and, and be with family and friends and to do whatever it is that is not work. And, you know, I leave at five, I come home, I need to do dinner. And, you know, I try not to neglect my personal life and family life. Um, and I'm hoping people do the same. So, but, you know, it did, it was lonely for a while. And then, and then now, um, and then it's not, it is, I guess it is, and it will always be lonely in the sense that, the ultimate decision maker, particularly when decisions are hard, is yeah, you. Is you. And sometimes those decisions are, you know, they are the ones you need to, to make and they are yeah. needed and it's in the best interest of the school, but it might hurt some people, you know, and those, and there are some hard decisions and that then you do feel lonely. Yeah. And, but I just, I just tell myself, you know, this is the job. Yeah. A, f a friend of mine who also was a former boss of mine in another um, management role, um, who was the CEO, used to say, well, listen, there is an easy way to describe what the CEO or the biggest boss of an organization is, is you're basically just a decision machine, right? right. You're like, con every day consists of hundreds and hundreds of small to gigantic decisions um, that you basically have to make in the best interest of the company, sometimes with hard decisions, sometimes, you know, with people not liking your decisions, sometimes with people, with, you know, decisions that might be painful at the moment, but are needed for the long-term, like viability and sustainability um, yes. of the organization. How hard, how hard was that to kind of get into that mode? Because it was slightly different to your leadership role before that and also the roles you had before you even came to academia, right? Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I see my, I, I see myself not as a decision making mach machine, but a problem solving machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, the, that, that's one of kind of the first realizations soon after I started, oh, this job is about just solving problems and I love solving problems. And so I would just, I thought I need to wake up every morning and have this very positive attitude towards problems and say, yeah. just bring them my way, you know, just bring, give throw me your them, problems, me. <laughs> throw them. I'll give you a solution, you know, if I can, or we'll figure it out. So thinking like that has been very helpful yeah. for me because then you don't get overwhelmed. You're like, okay, next problem, next problem, next problem. Absolutely, and um, yeah. I, I realized also that I 
and this is something that I'm correcting and I'm learning and I'm, I say, I second guess myself all the time. I feel it's important, um, to, to, you know, just stop, you know, at the end of the week and say, okay, wait, am I, is this, is this the way I should be doing this? Is there a better way to do this? I mean, is there, do I need to do damage control here because I wasn't mm. thoughtful, you know, because you are as a reporter, as a journalist, I'm used to making decisions to, to, to offer these solutions very quickly. Yeah. And what I've learned about myself is that I do that kind of automatically. And I, and sometimes the solution and the decision needed more time. Yeah. And, and so I'm trying to now say, okay, is this urgent? Do I really need to solve this now or can this wait? Because then I will have the space. Yeah. Cause you know, what, what, what we all in this jobs seem to know now that I know more people who are deans or presidents or who run organizations. And I talk to them a lot about this is, um, there's one really dangerous thing that happens, which is that you stop having the time to think and, and to just have time to just, you know, have create this space in your mind where you can reflect and think through things and find different options and not just, offer a solution immediately. So I'm, I'm trying to build that space and that time. And so I'm like, now I have now, I automated this, you know, reaction, which is, okay, do I really need to solve this right now? Can, yeah. should I wait? Should I just use the subway ride home to see, to think yeah. this through? And so I'm, tr- I'm trying to do that as much as I can. And I think that's such a, such a thoughtful approach because you also, um, with all the love that you and I have for academia, it's also not necessarily a fast moving agile environment, right? No university is. I think mm-hmm. everyone who works in academia knows that there are processes and bureaucratic issues and things take time for various reasons and sometimes for good reasons, right? But sometimes just because they always took time and they're just, you know, they, they're used to taking time. So I feel like you you also came into this role with a very different, like your personal pace, right? And your personal pace is very fast and very agile and very like forward thinking. How did that adjustment to being in an environment, and I don't necessarily just mean the school, I mean being in, you know, one of the biggest universities um, yes. in the country. How did you adjust to kind of that pace, that different pace of decision-making and processes and having to have like a very long runway for some you know, changes that you want to make and they might take a year or two to actually execute. So uh, two things. First, you know, in the school, as you know, it is academia, but it's uh, most people are journalists by, by training. So all of our professors and a lot of our, uh, you know, staff members and team members come from journalism. So they have my same pace and they are also like, they're always one. So, and, I'm, and I have sometimes to stop and say, wait a minute, this is not a newsroom. We don't need to stay, you know, until... 10 p.m. today, just, we don't need to talk this tonight. We can, this can wait until Monday. Nothing's going to happen. So I find myself reminding my colleagues about this. And I think that gives them also some more. Yeah. It creates less, less, less anxiety. Yeah. Then, then yes, we are part of CUNY. CUNY is the largest urban university in the world. CUNY is an incredibly important, amazing miracle of an institution you know, New York wouldn't be New York without it. It's like the largest engine of social mobility and civic engagement in this city, in this city and one of the largest in the country. 
And so I'm, I always remind that when I get upset, annoyed at CUNY's <laughs> bureaucracy or, or pace, I, I, rem- I say that to me and I'm like, Graciela, yeah. if this didn't exist, it would be, you know, it would be such a huge loss. Yeah. And so this is a university that has 25 campuses. We are, we are the smallest and, uh, 260,000 students. So, and, you know, an incredibly large kind of, you know, history and, and layer of, layers and layers of bureaucracy because it's a state agency. So I just have, I just, I'm very strategic. So what I do is like, okay, uh, procurement, uh, procurement requires between two and six months for us to buy something, renew software licenses, buy computers, whatever it is. So I've decided that the approach before has been, or the tendency is to um, send things, uh, you know, everybody thinks as a journalist on deadlines. So, so if we need the software next month, we're going to send the request today. And, and then everybody gets very upset because yeah. it takes two to six months. And what I've done is I've just sit down with all the directors and said, it's going to take two to two to six months. Let's budget for that. Let's send the, yeah. the request two to six months in advance. And guess what? It makes, it works. It makes things like less stressful <laughs> for everyone, probably also exactly. for the folks on the other end of that process who can do nothing about it as well, right? They just have exactly. to, they also become frustrated. Exactly. So I'm trying, so, and sometimes you don't have the, you don't have the time because sometimes something broke down and you need it. And then, and then they work with you. You know, I would just go to, to the, to the folks at procurement and say, I'm so sorry, you know, can you please bring this from down the pile, put it on top. I really need this because, and I explain why and people help you. But if you work with that, if you put that type of pressure and that urgency on people all the time, it is not sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. I, you also, I think it also speaks to that. And you mentioned that before, in other words, you have to somehow pick your fights, right? You cannot yes. create stress in the system all the time for everyone, or people are just going to break and things are going to break and you are going to break, right? Yes. You only have so much, you can only give so many urgent things your attention at a time. Yes, exactly. So, and I think you need to be mindful of that. You know, um, you know, we, we are at a, at a moment at the school in which, so my job, I'm the third dean, the school has been around for 17 years. So, you know, I ask myself every day. So, I mean, not every day, but you know, when I, you know, when I just think, okay, what, what have I been, it's been eight months, let's stop and think. So what have I done? Where are the wins? What are the things that I, that I, you know, didn't accomplish yet. And what is the plan for the next, you know, for the rest of the year? And then the, the next five years, what, what, what do I want the school to be in five years? I do think about these things all the time. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things is like, okay, so am I, am I going too fast? Am I putting too much pressure and can, can this be done? Can I just slow down? And I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing now is I'm asking people, you know, and yeah. in some cases, you know, there's pushback because people are like, you know, well, you there's too much change, and um, we didn't know you were. We thought you were the internal candidate. You're not. You know, or normally the external yeah. candidate <laughs> is the candidate of change, and um, and I and I this is the change. So this is interesting. So in my listening tour, I you know I I listened loud and clear what type of change people wanted, 
at the school and I'm doing exactly what people wanted. Mm. But then when you do it, people realize that change is harder than they thought, or they, maybe they thought they, you know, somebody, everybody else was going to change, but not them. Yeah. I mean, or, or that. And so I, I, you know, I'm at a moment now where I feel like I need to, um, really explain, you know, you know, what has happened in these, you know, eight months, everything we've accomplished. And this is a, a collective accomplishment, everything yeah. we've done. And we've done a lot. And it's been, I, I, you know, the school is having this, um, extraordinary momentum that is yeah. of course, you know, the accumulation of 17 years of work by, by a lot of people. And, and we are just so uniquely positioned for this moment, uh, in, in the journalism industry and journalism education. And that is wonderful, but that I, you know, you need to, I think that's part of your job, right? To remind people why you're doing it, where is it that you're going? What is the vision? And I feel this is an advice actually you gave me at one point when I was running CCM, which is that sometimes you need to over-communicate yeah. and that over-communication, you need to know, understand when, when you don't need to, you know, overwhelm people with information, but when you need to repeat things yeah. because you need to reassure that, you know, you're going in a, in a direction. So I, I, I remember that and I'm trying to do that now. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And mm-hmm. I, I, I really, I also try to live up to that, um, you know, to that motto. And it's sometimes hard because I feel if you're in the doing mode, um, that it's hard to get into that explanatory mode, right? Because yeah. you're so focused on doing and improving things and getting things done and solving problems that sometimes I, I personally sometimes feel that the, explanatory mode where it's more about, you know, explaining again and again why you are doing something. Um, it sometimes t- feels like a, a waste of time, which of course it isn't, but it's sometimes mm-hmm. so hard if you're in that motion yeah. to get out, step out of that motion again. Right. Yes. Yes, yeah. totally. And, and, you know, and you have to be able to also find the words. There's something sometimes, you know, I've, I've embraced this radical transparency, uh, philosophy and approach, and so I feel, I feel that, you know, I'm, I'm doing that because I, I, I want transparency in my life, uh, professional life, but also because I feel like the ethics of journalism are the same that should guide my, you know, job as, a, as a dean. It's a journalism school. It's not any place, you know, I yeah. mean, any, it, it's not about. So I feel like, you know, if, if our business is to be truth seekers, I, I can't not offer the truth yeah. and, and, and bring transparency into the process. Sometimes that's hard because there's so many privacy issues and things that you can't really share because, you know, those are either private or there are legislation that protects that information. It's, it's, it's privileged information. So sometimes, you know, it's, it takes a lot of thought and, and imagination and create and, and creativity to, to find the words to explain something when you cannot, when you cannot share everything. And, and I don't want to just say, you need to trust me because you know, why, you know, yeah. I, that's something you need to earn every day. It's not a given. Uh, so that, that is something I struggle with Yeah, sometimes. And I totally understand that. And I think you struggle if you would be a newsroom CEO or general manager or editor in chief, I think you'd probably struggle with similar things, right? Because it's the same thing. You have an organization and you try to hold the organization and yourself as a leader 
to the same standard that you want to hold the profession to transparency, radical truth seeking, telling the truth, changing society. But then obviously when it, when it becomes personal, right. And when it influences how you act and behave every day. And when all these, like you said, privacy issues and other things come up, sometimes it's so hard to stick to that path, right? Yes, it is. But I think, but we, we must. Yeah. What do you, I'd love to know, Graciela, you, you talk to so many newsroom leaders now, to so many people who are in charge of news organization. And I think that comes with being the dean of, of, of uh, one of the great journalism schools in the, in the United States and the world. You basically suddenly have that ear to the ground when it comes to what's going on in newsrooms. What is your perspective on newsroom leadership um, at the moment? What is changing? What do you see when you, when you have, what do you hear when you have those conversations? So that's one of the perks uh, of the job that people now just, they're so happy to just sit down with you and they are, they, they make the time, right. Uh, to talk to you. And, you know, I, I do that because I need to make sure that the education, the training we're offering our students aligns with, you know, the, the, the transformations in the industry. So as you know, this is a very, this is a moment and it's been for a while, a moment of, radical transformation in this industry. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's a very uneven uh, landscape out there. There's huge success and, uh, and, and then a lot of uncertainty and failure. And mm. um, there's, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of, and there's still a lot of very kind of deeply ingrained um, nostalgia and kind of, um, you know, sense of, um, you know, let's preserve, let's save what we had because it was, you know, this idea that there was these golden days and they're gone and people want them back. And I think that's the wrong approach. And, and I see that the leaders, the newsroom leaders that struggled the most are the ones who hung on, hung on to that Mm. feeling, um, because it's not coming back. And also it wasn't that great. It didn't serve everybody. There's, there's these myths about in this country, uh, particularly, and I do approach this from a global perspective because we know this is not just happening in the U S right. This is happening everywhere in the world. Totally. And, and, and this is happening at a time in which there's so many other societal changes that actually have a huge impact on this moment in the industry, like pol- political polarization and the rise of authoritarian, you know, figures and, and uh, inequality, those things are global. And, but, you know, when I look at those in the U.S., I also see that the industry here has been, uh, has been shaped by the same myth that American democracy had. So there's this myth that American democracy is uh, so old and stable when actually there wasn't a full democracy in this country until 1965 when black people were able to vote in vote in the south and there there's and and then the same myth translated into this idea that there was a mainstream media that served every american and you know the sole existence of community and ethnic media serving black people, Latino people, you know, uh, immigrants, uh, people in other languages, Asian Americans, there's a whole entire industry or several industries serving those communities because mainstream media never served them. So I actually, you know, see that the, the, I feel like the news leaders who are 
probably most likely to succeed are the ones who are looking at all of these things from a perspective of opportunity. And I'm not saying this lightly. I know running a newsroom is such a hard thing to do and people are just completely overwhelmed yeah. by the, the, you know, just trying to figure out how to grow new audiences and get trust from people and pay salaries. And so many outlets just the past few weeks, three outlets have either shut down here in America or laid off so many people. Vice yesterday, you know, BuzzFeed News last week. Absolutely. So it's, it's really brutal out there for a lot of people. So I'm not, I'm very mindful of that. And I'm trying to see how the school can actually, you know, work with, 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 with these leaders and, and, you know, it's an alumni losing jobs. So it, it sucks. And, but at the same time you see, I just don't want to lose sight of the opportunity because at the same time, there's this very interesting new uh, movement, I would say that is, that is growing and, and being, born uh, with all of these replanting local news efforts and all of these new outlets that are still small, but, but bring a model that is new and, and, and really, I think, exciting about new ways of serving communities and re-centering the, the idea and the, and the, 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 you know, the um, social service, the, yeah. the public service, sorry, the public ser- service um, aspect. So, you know, it's very, it's not, it's really hard to describe it in just one way, isn't it? Because it's just so, it depends on who you talk yeah. to. But uh, in terms of leadership, what I see the ones, the one big struggle that so many leaders are having is the, you know, generational one. So all these, mm. you know, people who are running news, you know, news organizations who are, um, which is a, also a, a population that's very, that, that where there's very little diversity in terms of both, you know, demographics and gender and also, um, uh, you know, kind of views of the world. And, and they just feel like they are, many people, many of those people feel they are kind of at war with their younger reporters, that they need to fight for ideas like, you know, um, uh, in, you know, editorial independence and, um, and objectivity, the way it's framed here and that there's an existential yeah. war going on there. Do you see that too? I see that too. And I, I feel <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite interesting because it's also such a global phenomenon, at least mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the Western societies, there is this like gigantic generational shift. It's not only generational, right? But there are some generational lines that are drawn where the understanding of what journalism is on one hand, but then also what work should be and what work-life balance should be and how work should work for someone. Like both of these things, I feel are being renegotiated at the same time. So I think that's why it's hitting newsrooms that hard because it's the profession and it is the general trend of like, what is work and how do I want to shape my work life? And I think it's kind of that double whammy of like, boom, everything is imploding or exploding. Yes, I think, well, I mean, we've all seen that in the, you know, in in the, come back to the office efforts. You know, I was a couple of months ago, I was talking to this, you know, this person who runs a very important mainstream organization here. And they were saying, you know, that they were just 
com- just so pissed because they had these beautiful offices and they were yeah. spending so much money and, and they were just really, they're going to, they were going to force people to come yeah. back to the office. And I said, are you really willing to die on that hill? Cause yeah. you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose. And also why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It is a bit of a cultural issue more than, more than just the office, right? There is more at stake. Yes. Yes. Because and there's also the, you know, this lack of trust in people. Like, you know, how do I know they're working if I don't see them? Well, you'll see the results. I, I don't know. I mean, I can see them and they will be, and they might not be working anyway if they're at the office. So how is that evidence of anything? You know, so at the school, what we decided is, you know, we, for, for staff members and, uh, you know, the people who have to come to, to, to the office, um, we've, we have, we've had since, since, um, since we started coming back a 50 50, uh, rule. So like you, you, you're home half of the time at the office, half of the time. So I've extended that policy. And every time I communicate that in emails that you've received, I always say, please be mindful that this is a privilege and that some people here, like our custodians, our public safety people, they don't have the luxury of choosing this. So, so this is something I think it's good for us, but it is, it is a privilege. Yeah. I think it's also my job to remind people of that. Mm, Absolutely. Makes, makes, makes a ton of sense. As you are thinking about, you know, as you're seeing how, how our alumni, the school's alumni who do the master's degrees enter the workforce, enter newsrooms, uh, start to make their way in journalism. One thing that we saw five years ago when, when I with colleagues started the, the leadership program, the executive program at this school that's still thriving and has now been uh, taken over by the wonderful uh, Nikita Patel. Part of the reason why we did that is because we saw that those master's degree students entering the workforce came from this incredibly diverse school that this school that puts so much emphasis on, um, on innovation and transformation and, and centering communities. But then suddenly they enter this workforce where newsrooms don't center those communities, don't center equity, um, don't put that huge emphasis on innovation and transformation and change. So they had these frustrations and we said, well, we need to tra- train leaders as well and retrain leaders as well if we want to change that. Do you think, uh, like five years later, obviously we can, you know, change the world, but what do you see now as you see those young students enter the workforce? Do you feel things are changing? Are newsrooms fundamentally changing in their culture? Is it getting better? I think, again, that it depends on where. I think it's not in many organizations and it is in other organizations. And there's new organizations that are being born with that um, approach as part of their, you know, foundational DNA. So, what I see is that what I think, you know, that makes our alumni so competitive is that they have a broader understanding of what the media industry is and what the options are. We do have a lot of them who are actually the new entrepreneurs. We do have also, as you know, an entrepreneurial, a very, very, very uh, interesting and successful entrepreneurial um, training program. Um, I see that, you know, a lot of the alumni of the, uh, of the news leadership uh, program are leaders already. And a lot of them are people of color or, and women. And, you know, they are, they are, you know, waging their own battles, trying to change their organizations. Um, 
it's very uneven. I don't know that you can say. So if you look at the uh, available diversity numbers for mainstream media, uh, which are tricky because most outlets don't are not transparent with us with that data. So the data is very very limited, mm. and uh, and it looks as bad as it did 50 years ago. I mean, yeah. even, or worse. I mean, uh, and we all know that in mainstream traditional legacy media, there's um there's a you know the glass ceiling that women and people of color hit the fastest. So that's why the approach for us, for the school has been, of course, since, since before my time as a dean, has been to look at the industry as a, as a whole. And so move beyond just training reporters, which is what journalism schools have done for a hundred years and train for all of these different tiers and levels in the industry because other, because the reporters are the, ones with the less power, right? So it's harder for them to change the industry. But if you tackle the top and the middle, and we are now trying to launch another training program for editors and and managers, um, Mm -hmm. mid kind of mid-level managers in the newsrooms. And I'm very excited about that. I'm very hopeful that that will bring uh, the change. I think there's also change coming from just the, generational pressure yeah. on the and, and the audience pressure on the industry. So there's there's kind of a you know a very loud and clear demand for uh, newsroom culture to change and also for um for newsrooms to to start serving audiences in a in a better way. Yeah. And that pressure, everyone is feeling that. So even for those who resist the change, they are kind of running out of options. They don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also you get just roasted if you don't um, really criticize if you're not aware of these things. So I see more and more outlets, of course, the ones that are the wealthier because the wealth disparity in the industry is just, uh, you know, as bad as in the world. Um, but I see a, a lot of outlets investing in their own professional development, development, mm. creating new pipelines, investing and training, you know, people that in the past were not, were completely overlooked. Yeah. Um, so I do see a lot of change. I don't agree with, with the, this view that nothing has changed. I, I, I think there's so much change and even people who are clueless about how to bring change about, they know they want, they want to know how. Yeah, totally. And I think you're, you're so right. There is like this, it helps that there are some broader societal, generational, like tectonic movements happening, right? It does mm-hmm. help. It does help that it's not just, you know, us, the little J school or, you know, one editor in the newsroom trying to change things. It helps exactly. that the world is changing as well. How much of that um, change weight, how should I put that? Do you feel on your shoulders? You're uh, the first Latina in this role, um, you're an immigrant to the US. You originally come from Argentina. Um, how much of that weight of like, I have to succeed because I'm here for all women, all Latinas, all Argentinians, all immigrants to the US. How, how much of that do you carry on your shoulders? One of the great things about this job, and I'm very, very honest now saying this, is that it is not about me at all. Yeah. And that has been to me as a writer and a reporter for like 30 years, almost, almost 30 years. That has been such a, I feel it as a huge relief yeah. that it is not about me. It is not about me finding, you know, just how well the book is written or the story or how, you know, I, you know, that was kind of 
I felt that pressure when I, yeah. when it was just my, of course it was, it was about, you know, the, the, the people I was writing about and I was always respectful of that, but it, you know, I felt the pressure that I had to do and I still write, you know, so I do feel that there, like, you know, I have this column about Latino issues for the New Yorker and I feel that type of pressure there. I'm like, you know, there hasn't been, there haven't been that many Latino columnists in that magazine, which is such an amazing institution. So I feel like if I mess up, I'm, I'm hurting other people who, who, who really deserve that chance too. Um, but I don't feel that at the school. And I think also, I don't feel like that because the school, I'm not the only person who's a Latina in this school. Yeah. This, this school, yeah. like everybody's like us, you know, it's not, it's a very, uh, you know, when you go into the, 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 the building in our school and you are in our classrooms and newsrooms, it looks like New York the same way. Yeah. So you're outside in Times Square. And it looks like inside. the world, right? It, it looks, looks, and like, it looks the like the world, but really like exactly. the world. Yeah. So you can't say that about a lot of other J schools yeah. or newsrooms. Yeah. So I, I'm not different from anyone else there. And I think that is really such a such a smart uh, piece of perspective because I think that is true. I think what makes it particularly stressful is if you're the only woman in the management team, the only person of color, the only immigrant, and if you're constantly basically, you know, sundered out, selected out as like, oh, you're going to solve that issue for us because you are the other in the room. And if right. that doesn't feel like it, it takes a lot of that and not a lot of that, but part, part of that weight, that extra weight that women and people of color and immigrants have to carry, you know, at least from your shoulders. Yes. And we are a majority women and people of color at the school. So yes. So everybody, we don't need to be mm. translating, you know, our experience to people. We don't need to be, you know, um, it, it's a given, right? Yeah. Hmm. Thinking about the future, um, however long you're going to be uh, the dean of this school, what do you want your your legacy to be at this school? What do you want to what do you want folks to say in 10 or 15 years about you, about the impact you had on the school, but also on the industry, broadly speaking? Uh, the way I I think about it for myself is like, what do I think, what do I want the school to be in five years, 10 years from now? I want the school, well, I want it to still be around. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I hope the news industry will see, I'm, I'm joke, kind of joking, but yeah. you know, I want us to be, I want the school to be, I want the school to be that, you know, that it, it is already one of the top J schools in the country, but I want it to remain and be, you know, the, the top journalism school in the country. I want it to still be, uh, to always be the school that really, uh, um, not, not only follows the transformation in the industry, but also can see it coming before it happens. So I want us to be, uh, I want the school to still be the most creative, imaginative, and I want the school to, 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 and this is part of my daily work now is I want the school to also, be the place where change is embraced and where there's enthusiasm about it. I'll give you an example. We know with all of this conversation about AI and how, uh, it's, there's, you know, the, 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 the coverage of AI and journalism skews towards where well, this could be, this could lead to our extinction, right? And this is yeah. dangerous. And this, so I want, and that might be the case. I'm not saying it's not, but I want us, what we're doing is we're now preparing programming to actually get our students and our faculty to experiment with AI and see, yeah. cause it's not going away and see how actually we can use it for, for the best, for, for, for good. And so I, I, I hope, 
in five years and 10 years and 15 years, the school is a place uh, in which everybody knows um, where it, that makes everyone very enthusiastic and where people want to be there because they would know that there's always something very interesting happening there. And I want the, of course, the industry to, to, to know and to really, you know, um, embrace and believe that the idea and believe that our graduates, if they hire our, our graduates and our alumni, you know, they are the, the ones who are going to, you know, they're the best prepared yeah. to, to be reporters and editors and news leaders. And I hope they, that's already the case. They, they, yeah. you know, I, you know, met, um, a news leader yesterday in, in, in a, in a dinner and, and she said, you know, we've hired so many, you know, Newmark alumni. And every time I have someone from any other school and a CUNY Newmark alum, I just know the CUNY one is going to be better. So I hired that. So I hope, <laughs> <laughs> I hope, you know, our job is to get our students jobs. So, yeah, you know, the main bottom line is they will still be the better prepare for the jobs as they yeah. exist. And I think it's also, Graciela, I think why I like that approach is also it it kind of exemplifies and explains that change is a constant, right? Uh, exactly. Change is not something that's going to end in three months, in six months, in 12 months. Sometimes, hopefully for the media industry, there will be quieter times a little bit uh, because now they are very turbulent with, yes. with also the, the economic disruption. But it's, it changes a constant and preparing students to face that constant and actively engage with it and productively engage with it, I think is a very smart um, approach to think about education. Yes. The, the way we say it is that we're training agents of change. Yeah. And, I, and I really believe yeah. that. I feel like, I feel that that has been my training as a reporter in, in Argentina in a, you know, at a time where we were just, you know, recently come out of a dictatorship. It was like a new world where yeah. people were not, you know, detained for practicing journalism. And there was this freedom and at the same time, very corrupt governments and a democracy that was really messy as democracy yeah. always is. And, and that creates a specific type of people, right? Like, like resilient, but also very, very flexible to yeah. a, for adaptation. And I feel journalists need that and also need yeah. to really still be very, very connected to to, to society and understand how mm. to serve the public. We're nearly at the end. So I'd love to throw that last question at you. If you could go back in time to young Graciela and tell her something about leadership and something about careers and something about finding your, your leadership mission, what is something you'd tell your younger self? Um, I would say... I, I never thought this was not my dream. If I can say this, I, my dream when I was a young reporter was to be the best political columnist in my country. And if you had told me when I was 25 or 30 that I was going to be the dean of a J school, I would have thought that was that you're drunk. And also <laughs> who wants that? I would not, I, that was not what I wanted. It's not so, a 25 year old. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to be, you know, I, I remember walking in Buenos Aires and looking at people. I was already in my late twenties and looking at people, you know, kind of going just about their lives and looking at them and trying to guess what they were like that. That one is an accountant. That one is probably a lawyer that, and feeling so sorry for them because they weren't journalists. I felt 
poor people, you know, I have the best job in the world and these people have their, these boring lives and these boring. So I've, I've always loved this job and I still do. And that's why I still write, but I would say just be open-minded and uh, be careful with the plans you make because they might change and be ready to be surprised and, um, and just prepare, prepare for whatever is coming because you don't know. I love that and wonderful advice. And Graciela, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. No, thank you. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link. 